Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week we're going on a journey into deep time. My guest is Thomas Halliday, a paleobiologist, whose book, new out in paperback, is Otherlands, A World in the Making. Now, Thomas, welcome. One of the most striking and strange things about this book is that it doesn't read like a you know, scientific history or a book about archaeology or or even biology, it reads like a travel book. Can you tell me what made you take that approach? I think what I wanted to do was, so one of the things that paleobiologists do constantly during their work is, I mean, essentially what we're trying to do is to reconstruct what life was like, what living creatures were like millions of years ago and tens of millions of years ago and more. So really, you know, when we're asking the scientific questions and putting through these, you know, computational models and sort of statistical tests and all of the other things that every scientist does in the, as part of their career, that is with the objective of trying to understand a living system, you know, whether that is an individual organism or whether that's the whole ecosystem. And I think, you know, paleontology is one of those subjects which is fairly well represented in popular writing, science writing, I think, you know, people are pretty familiar in general terms with extinct organisms, or at least some groups of extinct organisms like dinosaurs. And so I didn't really want to write another one where it was, you know, in in 1974, so-and-so dug up these remains and that told us this information about the past. I wanted to try and synthesize all of the work that has been done to sort of show what we have been able to learn and the amazing details that we are able to uncover as a result of you know changing technologies and advancing knowledge from all over the world. I mean, you decide to go backwards, don't you? There's this sort of yes. great, you know, leapfrog hops you make across just millions of years of time. I mean, I think we leave leave the earliest hominins behind after about chapter three or so. What was it that made you decide to go backwards and what made you choose the epochs that you decided to kind of plop your TARDIS down in? Well, there are 16 chapters in all and each of those takes a very specific site. So one of the things that I wanted to make sure is rather than lumping together vast swathes of time in the same kind of you know, people have an idea of things like dinosaur time, quote unquote, where, you know, that was a, an extremely long period of time where, as I say in the, the introduction, Diplodocus lived longer before Tyrannosaurus Rex than Tyrannosaurus Rex lived before us. This is a great disappointment to the makers of jigsaw puzzles. I can <laughs> Well, exactly. I mean, famous dinosaurs have lived alongside one another, but Diplodocus is alongside things like Allosaurus and Tyrannosaurus alongside things like Triceratops and so on. So I wanted to look at very specific sites and make them as complete as possible and realistic for a very specific time period, even down to, you know, let's say that this is set in the spring or whatever. But as far as going backwards is concerned, I wanted to make sure that I eased the reader into this, because although I say that paleontology is is one of those subjects where non-scientists, non-expert majority out there, they have some understanding of the past. That is, I think, really limited to two major groups. That is the dinosaurs as a whole and Ice Age mammals, really, as a whole. And so by beginning in the most sort of recent paleontological past, the last glacial maximum, the Ice Age 20,000 years ago, with the chapter is set in Alaska. It's at a time where we have mammoths and we have, you know, there are saber-toothed cats around, there are lions here, there are horses. These are creatures that we recognise. Saber-toothed deer as well, which is new on me. Well, there are saber-toothed deer that live today. Musk deer, for example. That's a a trait that has arisen many times. And it's not for predation right it's often for sort of showing off like the same way that the deer are growing antlers and having a good long saber tooth is a is an attractive quality in a potential mate but yes yeah, so, so going backwards was really to ensure that i didn't immediately drop the reader into 550 million years ago when no organism really resembles anything that's around today the earth is entirely different Just, Everything being so unfamiliar, I thought it could be totally sort of alienating and turning off any kind of sense of immersion. But if we approach that time by going backwards, then there's a sort of a way in and a chance to understand initially, I guess, in the first chapter as well, how this book is going to work. What's it going to be about? Because it is unlike other books which simply sort of describe scientific discoveries. It is meant to be sort of an immersive, as you say, travel-like quality. How hard was it to kind of imagine yourself into those worlds in what's plainly kind of a literary way rather than a a scientific one? Because obviously your day job, I guess, must involve that sort of imagination. But 
you know, it feels like you're using a slightly different muscle, or maybe you're not. Oh, no, the way that I would write a scientific paper would be very different from, from writing this, this book. I would say, I mean, firstly, it's just a case of, you know, styles that I read anyway. I do read quite a bit of nature writing, the likes of either, you know, Robert McFarlane or Rainer Wynne or Helen MacDonald and so on. And, all, you know, they describe relationships with landscapes. And But most nature writing really is is about the human relationship with a place and, you know, what it has meant to them in their life and how that has affected their sort of worldview looking going forward. And to some extent, I am kind of doing the same thing here, except that humans are, you know, very factually absent from it. So any interpretation of the past is necessarily done by our brains, right? This is a human looking back and, and trying to reconstruct what it would have been like had we been able to to walk around the landscape, swim in the water, whatever. But you can still sort of discuss, you know, themes about human relationships with nature while sort of excising humans from the fact of the narrative. Yeah, and as you go further back, there are these sort of moments, you know, which just sort of stop the reader in the tracks in terms of how alien it is. You know, fairly early on, for instance, we learn that grass, which I think, again, when one imagines the world of the past or, you know, crudely as we say, you know, dinosaur time, you think they're trolling around on, on grass. But as you say, grass is a kind of weird innovation it's it's a very relatively recent isn't it yeah grass is something that is a very successful group today it's i mean the vast majority of plant landscapes in the world today are grasslands they are more abundant than than forest ecosystems today but grasses although they arose maybe i mean even sort of in paleontological terms only about you know 70 80 million years ago or so in the in the cretaceous period they only began to form the major parts of ecosystems when you get into the Oligocene, which is getting into only about 30, 35 million years ago, which in terms of the age of the planet is, a, is an extremely recent phenomenon. So when you talk about sort of dinosaurs w- walking around, we imagine them on grass. Of course, there are carpeting vegetation at that time. There, there are plants that are growing on the ground, but they are not grass. Grasses themselves, you know, they have petalless flowers that are very small they're wind dispersed they're very well adapted to that kind of middle climate where it's not too dry and there's not a lot of moisture around when trees would start to dominate and that is a fact of the climate that we have at the moment and have had since the Oligocene which is roughly when Antarctica glaciated when we entered the ice house world that we have been in for the last sort of 30 35 million years so that fact that grass has not always been there, that the worlds that we take for granted that we look around us today are simply a product of the time we happen to live in, I think it's a testament to not just, so, so we, we think of life as, you know, always continuing, life will always really survive whatever we throw at it, but the ways in which life exists can be extremely fragile. The ecosystems that exist at any given time can be destroyed in an extremely short period of time after relatively small climatic fluctuations or and in some cases mass extinction events which are extremely dramatic and affect life all over the world yes you do give yourself license to you know take us to some of those mass extinction events i mean one of the great wow moments is the i'm now going to forget the technical name but when the the mediterranean suddenly fills up am i am i right from the west it comes battering through the Straits of Gibraltar, and then there's this gigantic waterfall in the eastern half. Yes, so that's not a mass extinction event in that nothing really changes, but it certainly have transformed communities locally. What happened is, to take us back to the, the beginning of that story, is that Africa is moving north tectonically. It is shifting towards Europe. And at a point about five million years ago, Africa managed to separate Africa collided with Europe to the extent that it separated the Atlantic Ocean from the Mediterranean Sea. And the Mediterranean Sea as a as a region, it's it's got very low rainfall. And actually, because of the position of mountains like the Alps and so on, very few major rivers flow into the Mediterranean. And as a result, evaporation is faster than the rivers and the rain can replenish it. And the Mediterranean Sea dried out over the course of about a thousand years, leaving this kilometers deep salt pan essentially and then at the end of this long period of of what's called the Mycenaean salinity crisis an earthquake at what is now the Straits of Gibraltar 
caused that connection to become re-established and water poured into the western half of the Mediterranean down this sort of sluice-like weir at 100 miles an hour, you know, carving out a vast channel that you can still see at the bottom of the Mediterranean if you use sonar and so on. But in the middle of the Mediterranean, there's this kind of high land, which is Italy, Malta, Tunisia, and the shallow seas that separate them. And it came up against this. So the western half of the Mediterranean filled up first and then poured over very near what is now Syracuse in a waterfall that would have been one and a half kilometres high which is one and a half times the height of the the highest waterfall today, the Angel Falls in Venezuela. But this is not just sort of a narrow, thin horse tail of a waterfall. This is one that is wider than Niagara, is just the biggest waterfall that, well, that we know of, certainly in the history of, of the earth. And when I came to start writing this book, that was actually the first chapter that I wrote, because the book really came from a a desire to to see it and <laughs> you know you can't go back and actually see it and the, so the best way to to figure out what it would have been like to actually see that is, is to write it down yeah i wonder slightly because you maybe because they're so familiar to us you don't spend a huge amount of time on the dinosaurs i don't think you put tyrannosaurus in which would be a great crowd pleaser we want to pressure from your publishers to say i can't put some some of the familiar dinosaurs in put tyrannosaurus in or did it just not fit in with your locations? I'd say there was, I don't know that there was there was heavy pressure. So there is a Tyrannosaurid. It's called Eutyrannus, the, the Cretaceous site, which would be the, I have one chapter for every geological period. And, and so Tyrannosaurus would have fit in the Cretaceous chapter had I set it in Hell Creek. But I had, in fact, set the preceding chapter, the Paleocene chapter, post-mass extinction chapter in Hell Creek in Montana, to show that world after the dinosaurs had been wiped out. And Eutyrannus is a tyrannosaurid that lived in, in China about 125 million years ago. So that's about 60 million years before Tyrannosaurus lived, but is part of the same family. Yeah. It's living in a, in a much colder climate than Tyrannosaurus did, and a lot of the dinosaurs around there are feathered. I wanted to write about... So the, the, the dinosaur chapter, as it were, is all about signals and display, how organisms communicate with one another, and sort of showcasing some of the incredible discoveries we've been able to make about the colour of dinosaurs' feathers and the patterns that some of them appear to have had which, you know, indicate camouflage and the kind of bandit stripe over the eyes that allow you to hide from the thing you're trying to hunt. And Yes, no, there's lots of that. And that actually it gives on to one of the questions that's, that's kind of fascinating through the book, actually, of what survives in the fossil record. And you, you say there's this one site, I think it is, is it that Chinese site, where, amazingly, actual pigmentation is there, which it isn't sort of almost anywhere else. I mean, what are the things that tend to survive? Yeah, so colour has been found at many sites. Yishan in China was the first in which these were identified in the 1990s. But as a general rule, fossilisation happens to those parts which are hard, whether they're the shell of a mollusk or the bones. You know, if, if a human is to become fossilised, it is likely to be the bones and the teeth that are going to be preserved. And this is simply a matter of chemistry and I guess also biology, right? So for a corpse to become a fossil, it has to avoid being destroyed. And that might mean that it has to avoid being torn apart by you know organisms that are scavenging on it. And it has to avoid being degraded and eroded by wind. So, you know, if you're living in an extremely dry place, quite often the you know bones can simply be abraded by sand that is blown past it or tumbled around in a riverbed and turned essentially into pebbles that are more or less unidentifiable. And so we get these certain locations, of which several in the book form a part, which we call Lagerstätten, and it's a German word which has sort of become, it means a site of exceptional preservation, generally. So these tend to be the bottoms of pools and lakes and so on, where it's very still, which means that bodies aren't sort of ripped apart by currents. There's not a lot of oxygen, which means that they don't tend to decay quite so much. And often the the sand or mud is very fine, which means that you literally get a higher resolution 
right, of, yeah. of the fossil, right? Because when a corpse turns into a fossil, there is chemical replacement of the bone with stone. And so if you have finer particles, then that means you get a far higher resolution of fossil, which means that you can often tell things that are, you know, details about the organisms that are subcellular in size, right? We can look at, you know, structures within an amoeba, for example, at uh, the Rhiney Chert in Scotland, which is a, a site from the Devonian, about just over 400 million years old, where we have some of the first land plant communities. There we have, you know, not just these sort of single amoebae and the tiny shrimps and the eggs that they lay, and you can look at the sort of single cell thick hyphae of fungi that are growing through the stomata of a, of a plant. And, you know, there's just the absolute details of the interactions. Isn't there also one site that you mentioned, which I, I think it was a Devonian site, that you say unusually it's sort of the other way around. It preserves the soft tissue, but it won't preserve the hard tissue. Yeah, this is an extraordinary site in South Africa called the Sum Shale, and it's um, part of the Cedarberg Wilderness, which is, I think, in the Western Cape of South Africa. And it preserves the world in the middle of a mass extinction event, or rather in between two pulses of a mass extinction event. The first mass extinction event that affects animals, which is called the End Ordovician or the Henansian Glaciation. At that time, the South Pole was centred on that part of Africa that is now the Sahara Desert. And you can sort of think of Africa as having been sort of shoved underneath the South Pole so that what is now South Africa is closer to the equator than elsewhere. And massive ice sheets expanded from out of this sort of Saharan and I guess Amazonian as well centre, because at that time South America was connected to Africa, and pushed north. And the change in global temperature, this is a period of massive global cooling, caused uh, mass extinction among marine organisms. And indeed, pretty much all life was marine at that time. Then the world starts to warm again, and that warming then triggers a second pulse of extinction among those that happen to survive the cooling. And the Sum Shale is sort of in between, it's during that melt that it is preserved, but it's a sort of a, a fjord with a, a glacier pouring into it. And just a happenstance of the type of elite clay that uh, forms the mud at the bottom of this fjord, combined with a very sort of acidic bottom water, very still water that the bottom of the ocean sort of gathers acid, which tends to dissolve the shells of hard parts. And the clay reacts with the soft tissues in order to preserve those. So we have this very paradoxical situation where, unlike almost anywhere else in the fossil record, we have individual muscle fibers preserved, but we don't have the, the bone and the cartilage and the shell. Right? The only time where we have those are as molds, as impressions of something where the, the mud has surrounded it and then the shell has been dissolved away. So it's a very unusual situation, but it's there that we managed to solve one of the sort of major outstanding questions in paleontology at the time, which was the identity of these very strange organisms which had been known as conodonts. And conodonts basically just means pointy teeth. And they were these hugely abundant fossils of you know, tooth-like shapes that could be found throughout the fossil record and which were abundant enough and which changed over time enough that if you found a conodont fossil, then you could work out how old the rock was by correlation with you know, other rocks where you knew the age. You know, so they were known as index fossils, right? These sort of fossils that have a nice short range, they change enough, and so you can really pinpoint a time just based on their presence. But we had no idea what the conodont animal looked like. All we had were these little tooth-shaped elements for a very long time, until the Sum Shale came along and people found a body fossil of a conodont associated with one of these these materials and found that these very long eel-shaped vertebrates or relatives of vertebrates and their bodies have only been found in two places which is there and also um, strangely in Granton in Scotland so you know rather close to home for us the conodont body fossils have been found yeah, in Granton and East Lothian. The Seam Shale is one of those extraordinary places where everything is sort of turned on its head. And I wanted to explore that a bit in that chapter because it's also a time of, you know, extinction with global cooling and the fact that you've got continents 
you know, the, the weight of the ice is lifting, so they are literally rising. So despite the fact that the ice is melting, locally the seas are kind of also retreating a bit as the continent lifts, sort of rises once more out of its sort of sinking into the mantle. All of these things are, are processes which go on and have always gone on, but which seem paradoxical from the perspective of our sort of short lives on this planet. Yes, that's extraordinary. And, and I'm interested in how much the scientific advances of the last couple of decades have changed the way paleontology is done because, I mean, you know, one thinks of, of, you know, Victorian gentlemen with little fossil hammers, but some of the inference that you're able to make, I mean, I was extraordinary detail where you say you can work out by the molecular signature of the wax that they left behind, what type of plant was in a given place. Yes, to a sort of broad degree, yes. I mean, you can tell whether something is a conifer or whether it's a, a fern or, you know, a moss or whatever. Mosses don't really have the leaf wax. But, you know, different large groups, you know, you're not going to be identifying between, you know, a tulip and a rose or whatever. <laughs> wax has a function in in the leaves of plants, which is to stop water loss and to stop damage. And different groups of plants have evolved distinctive lengths of the wax that they use. So the wax is made out of molecules which can be very short or they can be very long. And these, these molecules can be preserved in the rock record, which means that if you have a sample of the rock where you can find these molecules, they're not always there, of course, but they can be there, then you get a kind of a sample of the distribution, the proportions of different kinds of plants that would have been overlying that rock over, of course, a sort of averaged time period, right? So you don't get a single snapshot that you can continually update. You get a, an average sample. But also, if you live in a drier climate, then wax becomes a more important feature. And so you can you can compare abundances and also the different kinds of wax that you find as being more appropriate for more arid environments or, or more rainy environments. So this kind of chemistry of the rock has been, yeah, has exploded really in the last in the last couple of decades. And using isotopes as well, you're able to understand what the local climate was you can work out, you know, acidity levels in soils. You can work out, you know, important aspects of, of an environment, especially for things like plants, which really have limited ranges of, of chemistry and temperature and light that they're able to tolerate in any given place. So you can really begin to build a picture of not just, you know, a character list of which species were in a location, but also aspects of the climate. And, and of course, we also know... For, for various reasons, like for, for example, if you have a magnetic rock or a rock that is capable of being magnetized, it, they do tend to form in a, sort of lined up with the magnetic field of the Earth, which means that you can sort of tell what the angle was of a given continent. You can kind of work out where the continent was, and that tells you a lot about day-night cycle and seasonality in a given place. So really, with all of these details, you can bring together quite a detailed picture of what a place was like as a whole in terms of how we'd experience it today. One of your big bang moments, which we've alluded to, I think, before, is the gigantic meteor strike, which we all know about. <laughs> I'm intrigued when you talk about that, and that that's what you know opens the door many millions of years later to the real you know, triumph of the mammals. But you talk about how the you know our, our ancestors are you know, these creatures living underground to kind of survive that that period. And you then, you mention, as you do quite often, you draw on myth. You talk about Ragnarok and this Norse myth of Ragnarok and how, you know, creatures that are underground survived the Great Fire. You also use the Epic of Gilgamesh at various points. Do you think myth like that encodes a sort of species memory? Or is it a sort of happy rhyme? <laughs> no, I don't think that those myths are actually remembering anything that went on. I think, I mean, the closest that you get to that, there's a human memory of, of Ice Age times when, when, you know, humans were culturally and, you know, biologically modern, where, you know, we find in Europe and Asia and North America artifacts and art of organisms but sort of lack the cultural memory of them but we can you know we can see how organisms have been portrayed and you know some of my depictions of the organisms in that ice age chapter are influenced by the colors that have been used in cave paintings for example and then you get situations in australia for example where there is 
an unbroken sort of cultural passing on of events that did happen during the Ice Age. And, you know, I talk a little bit about the Jawain people whose cave paintings sort of record organisms that, you know, no longer exist in Australia and how there is really an unbroken tradition for tens of thousands of years. And those are some of the oldest cultural memories in the world of the past. But that's as far as it goes, right? It doesn't really go beyond any kind of human time frame. The story of Ragnarok is a, an apocalyptic myth that shares quite a lot of similarities with other apocalyptic myths around the world because of a general human worry about what is going to happen and has the world been destroyed before and is it going to be destroyed again, right? Terrible things do occasionally happen and we seek to explain those. The emergence at the end of Ragnarok of sort of the next first man and first woman, right, Leif and Lifrasir, out of the out of the roots of the world tree, right? There's an echo of that that you can you can bring within the story of the earliest Paleocene and the end Cretaceous mass extinction, but it's certainly not anything that is, you know, directly descended from it. Happy resonance. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, you think about other apocalypse myths, like the the myth of the great flood in Abrahamic religions, right? And and in fact, in the Epic of Gilgamesh, there is the, the great flood myth. Yeah, I think the Abrahamic religions pinched it, didn't they? Well, I, I don't know about pinched as such, because it's, it's all coming out of the same sort of general area, and they... You know, one influenced the other and is a sort of cultural descendant of it. But yes, I mean, there is then, you know, a man and a woman that survives and their offspring as well. Those kind of story tropes just appear in so many, so many different places. But I think they're a useful way into discussing the past. As, as I said before, this is how we relate to the past that is kind of what's important here. You know, it is in, in many ways a sort of personal interpretation of the past. This is my understanding of the sort of, you know, the facts themselves are, are heavily referenced and are backed up by centuries of scientific research. You're very scrupulous with your footnotes. There's a lot of them. Well, it's about 1,500. They are very condensed. So to any reader who is terrified of that, that you can ignore them if you want to. But if you are interested, they are there and you can look them up. But as far as the sort of the emotional response goes, that's obviously something which would vary from person to person. And every chapter is trying to discuss some sort of theme that's a little bit wider than just telling you what existed in, in the past. And so, of course, there are there are sort of modern human cultural touchstones that I sort of draw on. Yes. I get the sense, maybe I'm, I'm misreading it, that, that you're quite at home in the Carboniferous, that this kind of extraordinary, calm, you know, tree-covered landscape is a sort of very attractive and peaceful one. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I like her. It hadn't really occurred to me that that one was sort of written with a particular sense of that's where I'd like to be. I don't know. Well, maybe, it's, maybe that was my reading of it. I just thought it was quite nice here. I mean, I guess pootling along in a boat through a swamp in a world where there aren't very large vertebrates yet, and so biting insects have probably not really evolved. That sounds like a perfect swamp. Um, yes. <laughs> yes, you do. You do. I mean, there are these little moments where, for instance, you just say, you know, it's silent above ground because there aren't any birds yet. You know, that, that suddenly kind of rock you on your heels when you realise there's you know, nothing there. Or I mean, the very extraordinary one is is the the very earliest. The, the earliest one is the Ediacaran. The Ediacaran, that's it. Where you say, oh, incidentally, the sky looks totally different because half the stars aren't there yet. Yeah, that was something actually which I think I realised mid-writing would be the case. And came out from trying to fix something where, where I thought I'd made a mistake in an earlier chapter. So there's a chapter which is, I mean, we haven't talked about rainforests in Antarctica, but you know they're there and there is a chapter about the Antarctic rainforest. Yes, that's another one of the extraordinary ones. And penguins being so much older and more adaptable than I thought they were. Oh yeah, penguins have been living in Antarctica for, for about 50 million years and uh, times were as tall as us. But anyway, that chapter was going to was going to end, as it sort of does with a little bit of a reference of looking up to the sky, because it's kind of about the Earth's orbit and seasons and how they've sort of affected life. But I made reference to a specific star in the earlier draft, and it occurred to me after sort of coming back to it, hang on, how old is that star? Was it around? And so I got in touch with an astrophysicist because I thought they can't be, I'm not going to be able to figure this out by myself. And the answer was, yes, the star is old enough, but it wasn't, it wasn't near us at the time. And so that was something which blew my mind a little bit, which was the idea that, of course, through this time, we've been orbiting the galaxy. 
So by the time we get to the oldest chapter, 550 million years ago, we have gone around the entire galaxy twice relative to today. And as we've done so, all of the stars that we look out at in our neighbourhood, they've been going on slightly different trajectories and different speeds. And so we've left them all behind. The sky looks entirely different by the time you get back to the Ediacaran. I was aware of the fact that the moon, having been thrown out of the Earth by a collision when the Earth was really young and really molten, had been slowly moving away from us. And so deep in the past, it would have been bigger. And I was aware of the fact that because of the way that we're, you know, the Earth is spinning around and there's a small amount of friction and tidal movement, which means that the Earth's spin has been slowing. So the day would have been a bit shorter then, about 22 hours. But the idea that the stars, which are, you know, poetically the fixed things in the sky, they are the constants, that they would be utterly different. And in fact, that many of them that we are familiar with today would not even have been born is just something that is remarkable. The first shark is older than the stars of Orion's belt. You know, you, that's that's ridiculous to me. <laughs> and And yet it's true. So I wanted to just in that chapter where we get right back to not the beginnings of life, but the beginnings of ecosystems where there are multicellular organisms, ecosystems that it would be interesting for our eyes to look at, <laughs> that just quite how much time actually has been involved. Because you can get a bit blasé about, oh, 10 million years here, 10 million years there. But it is an extraordinary length of time and so much can happen. It is the the difference in the night sky is just <laughs> astounding, and you have some fun obviously with you know just weird monsters. You say that the weirdest of creatures are in the Triassic. The weirdest of vertebrates are in the Triassic. The yeah, but I think that's also from our perspective looking back, because they sit in that kind of uncanny valley territory, where we have some early mammals that are still quite reptilian, and we have you know early forms of groups that are recognisable, but yet you know part of a diversity that is just it's different it's weird so i think the reason that paleontologists or at least vertebrate paleontologists would say that the triassic is is a time of weirdos is that it's after the biggest mass extinction event of all time 95 percent of life was wiped out of the empyrean mass extinction and so when that happens you tend to get a burst of speciation and slightly bizarre morphologies, slightly bizarre solutions to evolutionary problems emerging before things sort of settle down to a few solutions that work really well. So you get that experimentation, quote unquote, going on, which makes things odd. But it's also the point at which the earliest mammals evolve. It's the point at which the earliest dinosaurs evolve, crocodiles begin to get going. So it's a time when those creatures that we do recognize today just don't quite look the way we expect yet. Kind of skunk works phase. <laughs> Also, another illustration, when you're going right back to the Devonian and you're saying, you know, there's not a lot here. There's sort of tiny little, you know, bits of green and there are sort of algaes and lichens and so forth. And then suddenly you've got these kind of three metre fungi, the prototaxites, which <laughs> seems so odd that you've got everything's tiny and scribbly and little and you've got these enormous great things. Yeah, it's very bizarre. So these are some of the earliest fools of ecosystems on land, which were ultimately created by the plants and fungi, essentially, and with animals as a supporting cast member that emerged onto land sort of together in this kind of, and sort of kind of discovered the way of, of living on land mutually and also parasitizing one another. It's all about the relationships and how, you know, the idea about a hopeful fish just sort of flopping up onto land, that is not how new ways of living are discovered they're discovered by ecosystems as a whole by a whole community of organisms kind of working together anyway and so at this time in the Rhiney chart in Aberdeenshire we have most plants are only about 10 centimeters tall they at this point you know they don't have there's no sort of bark going on there's no real support to them they're creeping moss-like organisms in general but towering over them all, I mean, you said three metres, some some prototaxites can be up to about nine metres tall that have been found elsewhere. When they were originally discovered, so prototaxites means the like ancient yew, like the yew tree, because they were thought they must have been trunks of conifers, right? This isn't too long before the Carboniferous, when we get huge forests of these things. So the first paleontologists who discovered them, you know, quite understandably thought, well, these must be the big, big trunks of trees. But as we began to look at the microstructure of them and to look at actually what how they were composed, it's become clear that they are actually fungal 
rather than plant. And more than that, they appear to have an association around the the outsides with these small photosynthesizing algae and so on. And when you get that really tight association between a fungus and an alga, that is called a lichen. And so these are absolutely enormous towering lichens that would probably have resembled something like a headless snowman, you know, or a or a big grey bollard, essentially, but towering so high over everything else. And so, you know, you might quite rightly ask, why are they, why bother, you know, growing so much higher than everything else? Are they rising that high in order to get a huge surface area for light for these organisms? Are they rising really high so that they can release their spores perhaps further, use the wind to get further into land you know and and to spread wider and those would both be perfectly sensible ideas and i don't think we have a particularly solid answer as to why but they are certainly the largest thing around at that time and unlike certainly unlike any lichen and practically unlike anything else that is living today yeah extraordinary well as we go back and back and back you know you do touch on this question of the origins of life itself and you know you you bust a bit of a myth you know you say look this idea that's quite popular in the imagination that you know lightning strikes the so-called primordial soup and you know a couple of cells twitch to life and so forth that sort of frankenstein version of it is now not seen as at all credible that it's the thermal vents at the bottom of the sea where we our best bet is that life started is that right I would say that's the majority view, and it's certainly the view that I would hold. I mean, as with any discussion of the origin of life, you can imagine that there are contrasting viewpoints. And, you know, I think if there had been an absolutely agreed solution, then it would have had quite a lot of news coverage. (laughs) (laughs) But it's certainly the account that I think has so much that is, you know, circumstantially the case so circumstantially true as well as you know direct evidence that i think it's the most plausible explanation for the origin of life that we have at the moment so these are these are alkaline vents so when we think of hydrothermal vents often you think of things like the quote-unquote black smokers is what they're called where you know you have organisms crowding around these sort of sulfurous sulfurous vents coming up there are also alkaline ones which are built in parting of a mineral called fusarite, also known as green rust. And this happens to be a catalyst for some rather important reactions that all living things share. The vents themselves also set up what you'd call a proton gradient, which basically means that because these are alkaline and the sea outside is uh, as a different pH, that there's more hydrogen ions outside than there are inside. And so when you get a higher amount of chemical on one side than another, you tend to get flow from the high to the low. All living things are powered by a proton gradient, even if it's with you know several steps removed along the process. Every one of our cells in our mitochondria, they you set up a situation chemically where it's more acidic on one side than the other. The protons then flow through a little protein, which acts as like a water wheel, more or less, right? It generates power in the changing of its shape and the chemistry that results from that. You know, it causes other reactions and so on. And every living thing on Earth shares this weird way of generating power. And it's something that occurs naturally at alkaline vents where you also get natural formation of what you call lipid membranes, so little fatty chemicals that form sheets, and that's what all cell membranes are made of, all the outsides of our cells. There are sort of natural compartments within the rock which are sort of pleasingly cell-sized sort of in between. These. So there are just so many, so many factors that for it to be not involved, I see it as a huge coincidence. Or it would be a huge coincidence, rather. And even, you know, some of the temperatures that are involved involved in the circling water around that vent, they mimic what we do in PCR reactions when we want to amplify the amount of DNA that we have in a sample, right? When we want to replicate DNA, you've got to heat it up and you've got to cool it down to very kind of specific temperatures, which are commonly found at these kind of vents in the cycles of water that go around. So is your sense we might be closing in on having a proper account of of what's happened 
Yeah, I mean, this story, in part at least, I remember hearing about about 10 years ago from Nick Lane at UCL, who has written on the subject and is a far, far more of an expert on origin of life studies than I am, for sure. The discovery, I think, of Fujerite as a plausible catalyst for these things is something that had happened since then. So really recent. Yeah, it's it's something which is, I would say, is an ongoing advance and whether you can say that it's solved is is very hard because we're so far removed from this and and it also doesn't mean that we're able to suddenly create life because there isn't that sudden jump from you know non-living matter to to living things and the life that exists now is so well established that um, we'd outcompete anything that we manage to create yeah. naturally right you speak very interestingly about the way in which adaptations that look very similar, I think you compare some pangolins and armadillos, turn out to have been essentially independent discoveries of solutions. Same problem. Is the sense when you're talking about life beginning that it only happened once or that the likelihood is that it's, it's something that in a sense is relatively easy and therefore happened at many times and in many different places? Well, on other planets you're talking about? No, no, not on other planets. I meant actually on Earth, that, you know, there might be an event on one side of the world and an event on the other side of the world independently. That is a very good question. All life on Earth that exists today is from one single origin. That I'm certain of. However, whether at the time that that life originated, it was a one-off, I really don't know. I don't think it's something which is, which is really answerable unless a path was proposed for the origin of life that was just so sort of direct that it has to have happened so many times right that it, unless you get something where you've got almost inevitable chemical pathways i'm not sure that you can answer whether it happened more than once on earth what we can be certain of is that there's only one surviving origin yeah and why does it all go completely bananas in the Cambrian? Incidentally, <laughs> we talk about Cambrian explosion, and is that just a matter of the fossil record being fuller, or was there something in particular that made this extraordinary kind of speciation? The answer is somewhere in between. What do you suggest there? For a long time, people didn't believe that you could find animals before the Cambrian. It was just that these organisms suddenly appear. This is when animals began. And then in the 1950s, people began to discover these soft-bodied organisms in the Ediacaran, which showed that, you know, there were precursors to life in the Cambrian. And in fact, we have found, you know, embryos of organisms that are older than the Cambrian, which show that certain groups of worms were in existence or sponges, you know. So the question then becomes, why is it this sudden burst of fossils, right? And indeed, there probably was a burst of speciation going on alongside it. But why do we suddenly get all of these fossils and of every phylum that exists today suddenly appearing in the fossil record? And that is really a question of what can be preserved, right? This is the time when hard parts begin to originate. And so, I mean, I'm not the first to propose this, but the proposition that I put forward in the book is that this is a, a consequence of an ecological shift of the origin of predation proper within environments. Ediacaran organisms, for the most part, they're not feeding on one another. The animals that are there are scraping up microbes from the from the seafloor, or they're filtering nutrients out of out of the water. Right? They're, they're not preying on one another. But as soon as one organism begins to decide that it's going to prey on something else, you then have an advantage to hard parts that's either as something that is going to tear that organism open whether it's you know it's a tooth or a or a beak or some sort of rasp you know a hard material is very useful for that and once that starts happening there's also advantages to armoring yourself with equally hard materials and so you begin to get shells and carapaces um it's also the time when so in support of this being a kind of time when predation is arising it's also the time when organisms start to be free swimming they're moving around a whole lot more in the water column not just sort of walking along or stuck to the surface it's the time when they begin to burrow i mean burrowing is something that appears only about 550 million years ago in the fossil 520-ish million years ago in the fossil record only before then everything just lived on that surface on the seabed surface it's the time when we see eyes independently evolving in so many groups. Now, that's something that's extremely important only if you need to make a quick decision about, about your environment. So either you are moving around 
or something is coming for you or you're trying to identify something that you need to eat. If you're just sitting there quite happily feeding on whatever is around you, then you don't need eyes, right? Plants detect light wonderfully, but they don't need a specialized organ to react very quickly to that light. And so all of these scenarios point to the fact that predation had been born. And indeed, there's some absolutely wonderful work that has been done reconstructing the food web of the site that I talk about in Shenzhen, you know, working out which organisms fed on which other organisms from a statistical perspective. So you can look at the relative populations of different species that you find in the fossil record, and you can look at the relative sizes and perhaps direct evidence of, you know, a shell having been punctured by something else or what, you know. Yeah. You have a mysterious predator. You say we know it exists because we found its feces but we don't know anything else about it. Yeah, that's at the Sum Shale, where we know about a couple of things that are predatory, but there is clearly something else out there that we just haven't found. <laughs> but that's, that's the case for most of these ecosystems. I mean, they are samples, even the ones that are sites of exceptional preservation, where you get fur, where you get individual leaves, where you get all of these things. We're never finding everything, right? And also, it's important to remember that these are the places where the organisms died. Right? They're not the places necessarily where the organisms lived. I mean, there's a wonderful example of a dinosaur that is found in a, you know, a deep marine sediment. It doesn't mean it lived there. It means that its body was washed out to sea, sort of bloated along a river and then sank down there. Right? So you always have this, you know, the interpretation, this is where their remains came to rest. It's not necessarily everything that was living there, or indeed some things that were not living there, but happened to end up there. Nope. You do have a final chapter where you sort of return us, you know, weary time travellers from the absolute back end of the early early Earth to the present. And you say that what what you've described in the foregoing chapters can give us a sort of perspective on what may be our latest extinction event. And you say, you kind of go almost, we've been here before the end Permian is kind of a parallel to our situation now. Can you explain how what you mean by that? At the moment, the parallels that we can really draw are between mass extinctions in the past and potential futures, and the patterns that we can see in modern ecosystems that are beginning and have not yet fully come to pass and can be stopped. The M-Permian mass extinction is known as the Great Dying informally, and it is, I mentioned it before, it's when 95% of, of species went extinct. It was caused due to a a major volcanic event in what is now Siberia, when over the course of hundreds of thousands of years, an amount of lava just poured out of a trap volcano. So not a like a conical volcano like Vesuvius or anything. This is a this is volcanic activity over a very large sort of flattish landscape, continual for hundreds of thousands of years, leaving lava deposits that are bigger than Australia. And that released a whole lot of methane in particular into the atmosphere, which caused runaway global warming. It caused the seas to lose a large part of its oxygen. And you know that's another thing that we uh, do observe today, right? Then the amount of oxygenless seas at the bottom of the ocean is now twice the size of Russia, or rather, I think has increased by twice the size of Russia in the last 50 years. That's an extraordinary damage to, to deep sea ecosystems today. We can see, you know, it caused acid rain on land. It caused a huge number of extremely terrible climatic and ecological symptoms. So the oxygen, lack of oxygen in the oceans caused algal blooms as well, which caused the release of poisonous gases. And so it's just an absolute smorgasbord of catastrophe, really. (laughs) And so when we are talking, that is the extreme example, saying this is a time when, you know, life faced the, the great dying it did life as a whole survive but 95 percent of what was there before did not and when it came back it was very different and was that weird experimental triassic world when whole new groups began to originate and so from our perspective when we are releasing carbon dioxide into the atmosphere at a faster rate than the great dying right it's the fastest fastest rate of carbon dioxide release in geological history is happening right now we know that we're changing the atmosphere in a way that the ecosystems don't generally respond to very well, you know, can cause major changes. Um, we are deoxygenating the oceans. We are fragmenting ecosystems. And our ecosystems are in general a little smaller to begin with, because at that time, the whole of the Earth's continents were 
together in one landmass, Pangaea, whereas ours are, are split out and separate, which means that there are fewer places to run to when environments shift. So if we're looking forward to the future, we do have a choice. I mean, what I want to make very, very clear here is that you can hear that and think, well, there's no point doing anything. These systems are far too big for us to control, whatever, whatever. But that's just not true. We have affected the climate to the point that we, we are at now, and we can reverse that to some extent. You know, the climate of the 1950s, for example, is gone. Right? That is not coming back, but we can limit the damage. And every day we delay doing that is is worse. But when we do act, it has effects and we can limit carbon emissions as one major part of this. But of course, that's only part of the problem. We also have issues of pollution and fragmentation of ecosystems as well and other you know, extractive damage that is going on. So I want to make sure that the overriding message is that of hope. Right, but just not a not a passive hope where you just sit there and imagine it's going to get better, but an active hope where we actually push for fundamental changes in in the ways in which we live that don't actually have a great deal of effect in our quality of life, right? You know, solar energy is the cheapest energy in the world, as it's been reported today. We we have models as well of political action. If the problem is political impasse, we can look to things like the Montreal Protocol of the 1980s, which limited within a year of finding out about the problem, chlorofluorocarbons that were damaging the ozone layer and provided for a fund in which wealthy countries pay less wealthy countries in order to sort of wean them off the, the cheap but damaging refrigerants in favour of ones that are not polluting. That worked. You haven't heard about the ozone layer in the news for a very long time because it worked, right? And it's well on the problem to solution. And, and so we have, you know, political models, we have the technological models, we have an understanding of what will happen if we fail. And so that should motivate anyone to actually push for that change. Is there not a little part of you that sort of taking the long view finds comfort in that in the sense that, you know, if you can see the whole history of the survival of life on Earth over extinction events, that you could end up with a sort of be less anthropocentric and take maybe kind of Paul King's North position where, you know, if we wipe ourselves out, so what? Something else will come along. Why is that anthropocentric? We're not separate from everything else. If we wipe ourselves out, a whole lot goes with us. We are not, you know, separate from the ecosystem. We are part of ecosystems worldwide. And we have evolved alongside one another for the last 35 million years of Ice House World in the climates that have you know, that have existed for that for that time. I don't think it's anthropocentric to say we should not throw this world away because the, the only reason that humans would go extinct, I don't incidentally think that humans are likely to go extinct, extinct, perhaps suffer severely in the process, but not go extinct. The only reason that that would happen is if everything else was gone too, right? And we, and we sort of ask the world to start again, more or less, from what fragments return. Life survives mass extinctions, sure, but what comes back afterwards is always entirely different, right? It might eventually, in two million years, approach the same level of diversity as there is now. Earth will be abundant and vibrant in the future, as it has been in the past and as it is today. But given that we have a choice whether to put us through a period of immense biological trauma or not, I really don't think it's um, at all anthropocentric or comforting to really consider that in the slightest, right? I mean, you could take that view of any kind of social change that has happened and say, oh, well, you know, the, the Black Death was actually a really good thing in the end because, you know, our population's higher than it was in the past. No, no, it wasn't. It was a horrible time that was very traumatic for everybody involved. And sure, in the aftermath, because of, you know, worker populations, there might have been some social reforms, but that is not in itself a sort of an excuse for saying that it was good and that we should look forward to it. We have a choice of avoiding a major catastrophe here, and not to take that chance seems ridiculous to me. A fair point. Well made. Thomas Halliday, thank you very much indeed. 